three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 390. We are 10 away from 400. I remember 300. It's been 90 episodes since then. That's unbelievable. I mean, we just been pumping them out like crazy. I love you. I appreciate you. I, I don't think I say that enough, actually. I am just so grateful for the people who watch and listen to this podcast. Uh, it is 6.55 in the morning, trying to get this recorded before the jackhammer starts, uh, probably at about 8 o'clock in the morning. So I'm trying to get it done. we got about an hour. Uh, let's jump in. I want to start today with a correction, actually. Uh, the other day, I said the Raiders won the Super Bowl in 2002. That's not true. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking. The Raiders did go to the Super Bowl in 2002. However, they lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who were actually coached at the time by John Gruden. It's a crazy story. In 2001, John Gruden coached the Raiders, and then he was actually traded. And, and yes, coaches can get traded. I, don't, I think a lot of people don't even know that. He got traded at Tampa, and... He replaced Tony Dungy, by the way. Tony Dungy, who went on to win a Super Bowl with Peyton Manning in Indy. Tony Dungy was fired after, by Tampa after the 2001 season. But then it gets really crazy because the very next year, John Gruden's very first year coaching in Tampa, he beat the team that traded him away in the Super Bowl. So in other words, the Raiders traded away their head coach, John Gruden, already a crazy move. And then 11 months later, after trading him away, they lost to him in the Super Bowl. That's a, it's one of those things where I wish I'd been broadcasting back then. Would have been so fun to cover that. Like that story, that's as compelling as Brady versus Belichick playing each other years later. Like that's unbelievable. I mean, I was five years old when that happened, but I, I wish I could go back. And, and I, I, that's like one of the only things in my lifetime I, I really legitimately missed out on that I'm like, man, that would have been an unbelievably fun story to cover. By the way, the Raiders traded, it's an awful trade. They traded John Gruden away for two first-round picks and two second-round picks and then $8 million in cash. And Al Davis, God bless him. Uh, may he forever rest in peace. Old age, I like, not, a, I, I don't know. It's, I don't, I still, I wish, again, I, I wasn't alive or really cognizant of the sports world at this time. I wish I could have heard the arguments people made because, were people in favor of it? Did they like it? I don't. I, I know my history fairly well, but I don't know what the media was saying in two thousand one or two thousand two when the trade happened. So, by the way, remember John Gruden's last ever game coaching for the Raiders before they traded him away. Two thousand one, John Gruden lost in the AFC Championship game to the Patriots because of the Tuck rule. Tom Brady fumbles. They call it a pass, which. I, I, I love Tom Brady. Favorite player of all time. That was a fumble. Sorry, I, I don't... The tuck rule is so silly. Um, it's just it's a crazy couple years for John Gruden. Loses in the tuck rule, gets traded, a coach to get traded, and then the year after getting traded, beats the former team that traded him away in the Super Bowl. How is that for a revenge story? That's unbelievable to me. I'm like, I, I wish I... I've always kind of known that in the back of my head, but I never really processed exactly how insane that story is until I was trying to correct it. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. Okay, let's talk about the Jaguars. The Jaguars traded 2020 first round corner CJ Henderson to the Carolina Panthers. He was the number nine overall pick in the 2020 NFL draft. Here are the trade details. The Panthers got 
the young corner, C.J. Henderson, and a fifth-round pick. And the Jaguars got a tight end, Dan Arnold, and a third-round pick. So I'm going to pick a side here. There is not always a winner to a trade. I, I don't always pick the winner of a trade. However, my prediction is that Carolina is going to be the winner of this trade. When we look back on this trade a couple of years ago, we're going to remember this trade as the C.J. Henderson trade. And that doesn't mean the Jaguars didn't benefit from what happened. But I do believe that C.J. Henderson, who is a really talented cover corner in man-to-man coverage, I believe he's going to develop into a star in Carolina. And my prediction is, this is a key moment in the Panthers' rebuild. Think about it. When they're fully healthy, Carolina now has two first-round corners, J.C. Horn and now C.J. Henderson. Plus, they got a stud young safety, Jeremy Chin. The potential in Carolina right now, it already was ridiculous. You got Sam Darnold, who's never really had the help he deserved. You got a great coaching staff. You got a great owner who's investing tons of money in the franchise. They're building something really cool. And then they go get C.J. Henderson, a player that just, it's just, oh, man, it's awesome. And I, I talked in the preseason about how one of the keys to the Jaguars season is can they develop their young talent? I, this isn't in my notes, but I, I, now that I think about it, it's like, well, Carolina is clearly doing an amazing job developing their young talent. So far in Jacksonville, they've already traded away a first-round pick. They gave up on C.J. Henderson. I, I think having good players around C.J. Henderson in Carolina is going to help them. They're all building something together. Plus, the defensive coordinator in Carolina is a fantastic dude. Phil Snow, he's awesome. I think C.J. is going to enjoy playing for Phil Snow. It's going to be a good time there. Now, this will not be remembered as the Dan Arnold trade. We're not going to look back and go, hey, remember the the Dan Arnold trade? No, no, no. However, Dan Arnold is a really talented receiving tight end. He's been underrated, in my opinion, ever since he was with the Arizona Cardinals. He made a couple catches two, three years ago that I was like, is anybody, this new Dan Arnold, I know, like, not a household name at all, but he is making great plays. And Jacksonville desperately needed a tight end. This was a move that, solved a big problem, a hole in their roster. They went out and they got their young quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, a rookie, number one overall pick. I mean, if you get a young quarterback, your job is to build a team around them and provide them with weapons. Hey, credit the Jaguars. They went out and got Dan Arnold, a really, really solid receiving weapon. Now, most people have never heard of Dan Arnold. Again, he's not a household name, but he does bring value. People that I I, I totally, if no one's ever heard of Dan Arnold before, Totally fine. Again, I I watched tons of film. I did a film analysis of Kyler Murray. He showed up. I was like a guy who had crazy potential, made a couple of really big plays in Arizona. I watched him, did some good stuff that, you know, he had Sam Darnold to Dan Arnold. That was a fun call a couple times in Carolina. But Dan Arnold brings value to Jacksonville. And he's going to make a lot of good plays. He will be a solid contributor for, you know, multiple years, in my opinion, in Jacksonville. A guy that um, I'm trying to think of a name. Like there's every, every franchise has a guy or two that is like a local hero that isn't a national star, but makes a couple plays. The local fan base knows him. That is what Dan Arnold is going to be. I'm trying to think of a name like that. You know, um, it's, it's just, there, there's so many guys like that that are just local heroes. Like, uh, Leon Washington comes to mind, a guy who played in Seattle and was like a return man. And there's a couple people like that who, you know, uh, uh, in, in the baseball world, Richie Sexton was a first baseman for the Seattle Mariners when I was a kid. And not like a massive name 
in Major League Baseball. But for me, he was the first baseman of my favorite baseball team. The local people knew him. He had a couple of big home runs. I remember like that's what Dan Arnold is going to be, a guy who makes a couple big plays that Jacksonville fans will know and be familiar with and be happy with. And it's also very, very possible because it's so important to support your young quarterback that it's possible that adding Dan Arnold could make a massive impact for the development of Trevor Lawrence. If this helps make Trevor Lawrence and develop him into a better quarterback, you know, the Jags rookie quarterback, then, hey, we're going to look back on this trade. We may not say that Dan Arnold was a big name or whatever, but the legacy of this move could be, hey, Trevor got a much-needed receiving weapon. It brought him equilibrium. It helped him have a, 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 someone down the seam that was open more often and could make big catches. I, I just, I don't know. I, I know that people are going to find this trade very unpopular because one guy's a big name, one guy's not. But don't discount the potential value that Dan Arnold could have for the career of Trevor Lawrence and therefore the entire franchise direction for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, part of the problem with C.J. Henderson, the reason why, one small factor why they traded him away is he got hurt last year. He played in eight games during his rookie year last fall. And then he missed last week due to an injury. And that's a factor, right? Injury concerns. He's not always available. That's a a real thing that I I think is keeping Jacksonville from really readily embracing C.J. Henderson. That's part of why they traded him. But this is what the trade really boiled down to between Jacksonville and Carolina. The Jaguars felt like they had a number of really solid corners. They have rookie Tyson Campbell. Trey Herndon's coming back from an E injury. Uh, they, you know, they, have, they give Shaq Griffin a massive contract in free agency. They've got like three corners that they feel very good about that are, in, in, clearly in Jacksonville's opinion, good enough to be starters in the NFL. Maybe they believe they don't need C.J. Henderson. They're like, what we really need is a tight end. Our young quarterback's really struggling. He needs a tight end badly. And clearly, very obviously based on the trade, Jacksonville decided they needed a tight end more than they needed C.J. Henderson. That's an obvious, what happens when you trade, make that trade. And, and again, I realize this trade looks bad trading a former first-round pick for an unknown tight end. But it looks way worse than it is. The Jaguars filled a hole on their roster. I'm kind of beating that to the ground, but you have to understand. I, I know how it looks optically, but it looks worse than it is. Now, the reason why Carolina, Jaguars fans are skeptical, like, well, if Dan Arnold's so, so good and capable, why would Carolina get rid of him? And I, I, I understand where you're coming from. I get it. You're frustrated. You, you were excited about the future of your first-round pick, and now you got rid of him for a guy you've never heard of. But the, the only reason why Carolina was willing to get rid of Dan Arnold, a very good receiving tight end, was because of the emergence of a rookie tight end, Tommy Tremble. Tommy Tremble is a third-round pick out of Notre Dame. He's fast. He's got good hands. He's a good blocker. He's just like a good all-around football player. Like, he's a tight end who had a rushing touchdown against Houston on Thursday Night Football. How many tight ends in the NFL have a rushing touchdown ever, let alone (laughs) in their rookie year? And so Carolina is expecting that when you give Tommy Tremble a bigger role at tight end, they expect he's going to rise to the occasion. They're like, yeah, we like Dan Arnold. But we got another guy behind him. We are, you know, basically the Jaguars are rich at corner and the Panthers were rich at the tight end position. And they made a trade that will benefit both of them. But again, I I believe Carolina will win this trade in the long run because with the good players around him and the culture the Panthers have, I believe C.J. Henderson's going to develop into a star. 
Now, I do have to add this one thing because this is a like a final little hey, topic's done. We we finished it, but this is one little final like looming question. I'm trying to think of what to call it, like a stinger. Maybe you ever you go to a Marvel movie and the credits roll, and then there's like one more hook at the end. I want you to think about this because I, I saw this news and my immediate reaction was, is there anything we don't know? Like, what aren't we telling? What are, what are we not being told? What, is there some secret? Like, often in the PR world, in the sports world, like, stuff happens and we never really know why. We never hear why. And this trade can be explained. I just did it. I said, hey, they had to need a tight end and they had a couple corners. It, it makes sense. And, and you know, C.J. Henderson's been injured before. But it is still very, very abnormal to draft a guy in the first round and then trade him away only a year later. You made this big investment, and you gave up, like, instantly. And, and I know Urban Meyer's regime did not draft C.J. Henderson. But it's still weird. It's, it's not a normal thing to have a first-round pick who get— It happened to Dwayne Haskins. It happened to a guy in Tennessee. Like, it doesn't—it happens sometimes. But I, I just wonder, is there something that we aren't being told? Was C.J. Henderson unhappy? Did maybe he not buy into the Jaguars' new coach, Urban Meyer? Was he disgruntled? Urban Meyer said in an interview, it's a very, it's a weird comment that I, if you read between the lines, you're like, well, that's, that's, that's not normal. And maybe it shows the dysfunction of Urban Meyer. Maybe it shows a problem with C.J. Henderson. But there, there's a weird quote I'm going to share with Urban Meyer. He said, he mentioned that he talked to C.J. Henderson's parents. He's an NFL player. He's an adult. You're, you're not recruiting C.J. Henderson. This, this is an NFL player. You're paying him. You don't need to talk to his parents. I, I, it's, it's very weird to go talk to another adult's parents about said adult. That doesn't happen. A, and maybe that is a college move, and Urban Meyer is still figuring out what's going on. He's trying to be the Southern boy and be nice and whatever. But I just think if you read between the lines a little bit here, something seems a bit off. Why is a head coach talking to a player's parents, an adult NFL player's parents, about said player's future? I I don't know. I'm curious if we will ever learn more. um, Because I I just wonder, maybe five years from now, ten years from now, a year from now, when he retires, like someday, I hope, we hear the backstory and learn why C.J. Henderson was traded away from the Jacksonville Jaguars. Okay, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to answer questions throughout the entire episode, so I'm just going to introduce Ask Zach now. Ask Zach is my favorite. It's not really a segment today. It's just an aspect of the entire show. I'm going to dip in and out of questions from the audience. In case you do not know how it works, Ask Zach is where I answer questions from the audience. Questions, comments, concerns. I, I always, every week, put on Patreon and say, hey, Right into the show. Tell me what you think, your question, you got a concern, you got a comment, you got uh, maybe a correction, like whatever you got. I, I love hearing from the audience, and it's a way to do it. So if you, in case you do not know how it works, you go to patreon.com forward slash Zach Schaumler. You give a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. That's all it takes. $1 a month gives you access to submit questions on Patreon. Now, you can give more than a dollar a month. Please do. I'm begging you. It really would mean a lot to me. It helps me pay my rent. I'm not kidding. That's a real honest thing. Uh, but I think a dollar a month is a fair, tiny, very low barrier to entry. 
to submit questions on Patreon. Now, my guarantee on my end is I do not guarantee to read your question on the show. My only guarantee is I look at every single question with my eyeballs. I read them. I look at them. I consider them. And then I pick the top couple. I try to read them on the show. And I, I, I try to every episode to work as many as I possibly can into the show. Uh, but that is, for anyone who doesn't know, that is Ask Zach fully explained. Now, Anthony wrote in, first question of the day. He says, who's the best of the 0-3 teams right now? So there are five teams right now that are 0-3. Indy, Detroit, the Jets, the Jaguars, and the New York Giants. Men, the boys in blue. The G-men. I almost, I almost mixed G-men and boys in blue into like, I said G-blue, and that's not a, that's not a thing at all. <laughs> um, I want to rank the 0-3 teams from worst to best. So by the end, we will figure out which team is the best 0-3 football team in the NFL. So the two worst 0-3 teams are tied. I didn't feel like ranking. I just like, they're neck and neck. It's crazy, the parallels. They're tied at the bottom of this list. It's the New York Jets and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Here are the parallels. Both teams are rebuilding. They had the number one and number two overall pick. They both have rookie head coaches that have never been head coaches in the NFL before. They both have rookie quarterbacks starting. And even weirder than that, both rookie quarterbacks, Zach Wilson and Trevor Lawrence, are both leading the NFL in interceptions, each having seven interceptions. It's like parallel after parallel after parallel. I don't know who's worse. Uh, I, I was more excited. I, I Look, I, I thought Jacksonville was going to be a team that struggled a lot, but had some young talent. And then I thought that the Jaguars were a team that, uh, sorry, the, sorry, the Jets. I thought the Jets at minimum. Uh, so I thought the Jaguars, young team, good talent. I thought the team in New York, Zach Wilson, crazy talented young quarterback. And I'm like, man, you got Mike LaFleur, Robert Sala. That's a a great defensive-minded head coach, a great offensive coordinator who's got a, a very smart you know, older brother, Matt LaFleur. Mike LaFleur is going to be great. Worked with Kyle Shanahan for years. I'm like, this is going to be a great coaching staff. And I'm seeing stuff like people are saying the Jets might have the worst coaching staff in the entire NFL. It's, it's a massive disappointment, and it's a race to the bottom. I, I really have no idea when either team is going to win a game. I, I, at some point, the Jets are going to steal a win Maybe Mac Jones gets hurt against the Patriots and the Patriots end up having COVID and the Jets steal a win from the Patriots. Something, something like that happens. There's always a bunch of unexpected wins in the NFL every year. Uh, now, honestly, I, I kind of hope that both the Jets and the Jaguars just remain awful all year because I want them to get another top five pick because the Jets certainly need more players. The Jaguars certainly could use another top five pick to have it, another really good player they grab in the 2022 NFL draft would benefit both franchises. So, very quietly, I know, I guess publicly, I, I am talking publicly. I, I am openly uh, cheering for the Jaguars to lose every single game. I'm openly cheering for the Jets to lose every game. And I, and I apologize to their fan bases, but you got to understand, like, it, for the health of their franchise, I think it's better for them to lose and get a better draft pick and maybe open some eyes about Urban Meyer as a coach and maybe considering the coach in New York. I, I thought Robert saw, I don't know, I don't know what to make of it, but I. I just know that having a high draft pick in the top five next year would benefit both the Jets and the Jaguars. Now, the Giants are also a bad 0-3 football team, although I think they can win a game here and there. The, the Giants, the New York Giants, are not completely awful. It, it's really sad, though, how both teams in New York City are, like, just abysmal. It's like, oh, dude, the, Buffalo's good. I don't know why they can't—why why can't Buffalo sprinkle some of their New York dust in New York City? I don't know. 
the Giants have been undisciplined. They made a ton of mistakes, and that's that's what's really shocking about the Giants is that I expected Joe Judge, their head coach, to be a guy who could, at minimum, he's he's a he's a a really tough old school coach. I'm like, this is gonna lead to discipline. Although I did mention, I, and I've been saying it for a long time, quietly every every once in a while you hear a story about Joe Judge, and I'm like, that sounds miserable. A bunch of guys who retire on the spot. You're making NFL players do, like, high school punishments. It's very bizarre. And, and I wonder, is, is Joe Judge's really tough, kind of hard edge already in year two wearing people out? It's possible. It, it's certainly not—it's it, not a wild, crazy, out-of-left-field notion that maybe Joe Judge's leadership style <laughs> is not really good and, and not really enjoyable and conducive to winning football games, Right. I don't know. It's, he sounds like a coach from the 1950s. The, the stories you hear, the laps he makes people run. Like, these are grown men who are trying to take care of their bodies. And training camp sounded like hell in New York. Now, the Giants' offensive line is completely awful. I hate the way this football team is built. Like, if it were me, I'm firing Dave Gettleman today. Maybe tomorrow if I could. I, I, Dave Gettleman, I hate calling for someone's job. I don't, I don't do it very often. Um... But I, I just think his, it, it's a philosophical difference between me and Joe Judge. The way he's built the Giants football team clearly does not value offensive linemen. He thinks he can bring in old guys like Nate Solder and they can like, – sorry, you need to draft offensive linemen and you don't need to draft a running back number two overall. I'm, I'll, I'll say that till I'm dead. Saquon Barkley was a terrible pick, and I even acknowledge how good he is. He just should never draft a running back number two overall. You had Quinton Nelson right there. You could have grabbed Nick Chubb in the second round. I got to make a whole topic about it. It's like, ah, oh, it's so frustrating. Now, the one shocking bright spot about the New York Giants is that their quarterback, Daniel Jones, hasn't been terrible. And then, I, I, you know, the other – well, they, they beat Washington in week two, and I was looking at Daniel Jones, and he played pretty well, and it wasn't his fault that they lost. And that was a shock to me. I'm like, huh, okay. And then I, I realized, well, Daniel Jones is only 24 years old. He's in year two of Jason Garrett's offensive system. And I realized, like, I, I have an open mind about Daniel Jones. And I'm, and I'm really curious how the rest of the year goes for him. So maybe if Daniel Jones can avoid turnovers and play solid, he might even keep his job. At the end of the year, and I, and I certainly, I thought if the Giants lost a bunch of games, it would be because Daniel Jones is holding him back, and it's actually the opposite. It's everything but Daniel Jones right now, and that, that is unbelievable to me. Now, the second best 0-3 team in the NFL is the Detroit Lions. They have been really competitive, actually. They almost beat the 49ers week one. They almost came back and you know made a massive comeback against the 49ers late. Remember, the Lions led Green Bay at halftime in week two. They were up 17-14. to 14. Jared Goff was playing out of his mind in the first half. And then in week three, the Lions should have won. I mean, they had a brutal loss uh, where Baltimore pulled off a fourth and 19 and then kicked the longest field goal in NFL history to beat the Lions. I mean, that's just what, – what can you do there? The Lions are not awful. The Lions are competitive. The Lions are in games. The Lions – their new head coach, Dan Campbell, is awesome. I really like Dan Campbell. I, 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 really, I actually think that Dan Campbell is the right guy to turn this football team around. I think they need to figure out the quarterback position. I don't know that Jared Goff is the answer. But this team, they're fighting hard. They're competing. They're in ball games, and that's, that's new for the Lions, right? They usually get decimated. And running back DeAndre Swift has been really good. I mean, he's part of the reason why 
That Baltimore game was even close. He's been electric. The offensive line has been impressing me. Penny Sewell, the left tackle, is already fantastic. The quarterback, Jared Goff, has been the main problem. And Jared Goff, he's so infuriating to watch because you see Jared Goff, even for Detroit, like, go watch the first half of that Green Bay Packers game week two. <laughs> he's playing out of it. He's playing great football. He, a very clean game. He played a pretty decent, clean game against Baltimore. But the problem is he's inconsistent. Like, you see, you see the good side of Jared Goff regularly, and you're like, oh, man, there's something here. And then he makes a boneheaded mistake or an idiotic, embarrassing turnover, and you're like, oh, that, that's the Jared Goff. That, that, that's why the Rams traded him away. It's, it's just like Jared Goff gets in his own way all the time, and I, I don't know that he's a long-term answer in Detroit. But if, if, they, if Detroit can figure out the quarterback position, whether that's Jared Goff or they draft someone, like, I actually feel – really good about the Lions rebuild right now. And I, that shocks me to say, but I, and you know, it doesn't because Dan Campbell, I, I liked his passion from the beginning. I even said in my predictions, like, I don't think they're good, but I think they're doing the right stuff and they got a good coaching staff. Now the Indianapolis Colts are the very best 0-3 football team in the entire NFL. They've had bad luck at the injuries. They, uh, the Colts had a tough schedule early on. Their offensive line was really banged up week one. I mean, you can't, you can't have like half your offensive line injured and expect to do well. And, you know, week two, they played the Rams, who might be the best team in the entire NFL. This is like the litmus test for Indianapolis, right? They played the L.A. Rams, who are potentially going to win the Super Bowl. And the Rams won by three points against Indy. And if Carson Wentz doesn't get hurt at the end of that game, he left the game early. Carson could not play in like the final drive, which would have given the Colts an opportunity to tie the game or take the lead. What happens if Carson Wentz doesn't get hurt week two against the Rams? I, I, like, that's how good the Colts are. Don't sleep on them. And, you know, they lost uh, in week three to a pretty solid Titans team. Titans, by the way, in my opinion, match up perfectly with the Colts. I mean, they, they just have a, it's a brutal matchup for the Colts. I don't know that the Colts are going to beat the Titans either time they played them this year. But the Colts are better than 0-3. Indianapolis is underachieving, if you ask me. And I actually think that if the Colts can add, like, a stud receiver, a man, if they can figure out left tackle and get consistent play, I don't know that Eric Fisher is the guy. He's injured. I don't know if I trust him yet. Like, is Eric Fisher going to be able to play next year and the year after that? I don't know or think so. If the Colts can get another player in their secondary, like, they're, they're two or three moves away from like a Super Bowl run, in my opinion. If Carson stays healthy, they add a couple players. Like the Colts are a very good football team that should not be 0-3. And they've had a very, very disappointing start to their year. So I, I've really shifted my expectation for the Colts this year. I was excited. Now they're 0-3. It's not completely insurmountable, but it's definitely not a good way to start your year. Every game matters in the NFL and I I just my my expectation has shifted from a potential Super Bowl run this year to now hey the Colts season is all about Carson Wentz getting comfortable and building chemistry with his new teammates and once Indy can get healthy and has time to all get on the same page you got to realize the Colts are capable of beating anybody in the NFL the Colts are absolutely the very best 0-3 team in the NFL. Okay, uh, let's go to the other side of the standings for a moment. 
Let me drink some water real quick. There are five teams that are 3-0 and undefeated right now in the NFL. You have Denver. You got the Raiders, Arizona, the Rams, and Carolina. And I want to rank these five undefeated teams. Uh, in my opinion, the very best 3-0 and team in the NFL is the LA Rams. And they're not just the best undefeated team in the NFL. Of the five, they're the best. But they're also arguably, if not the very best team in the entire NFL. Like, and that's pretty unanimously agreed with. Like, they're the top of everyone's power rankings. LA's fantastic. They're a really, really good football team. Everybody knows about the Rams' new star quarterback, Matthew Stafford. They traded for him this offseason. Their coach, Sean McVay, is an offensive genius. The way they work together is so cool. They have a lot of fun together. Receiver Cooper Cup is literally leading pretty much every category in the NFL. Defensive tackle Aaron Donald is a guy who's in the running for defensive player of the year every single year. Now, in my opinion, the guy who isn't talked about enough, and I, I don't think people forget about him. It's just that the other stars, Matthew Stafford, McVay himself, Cooper Cup, Aaron Donald, like these other players in L.A., are so good and so attention-grabbing that I think it makes people like let Jalen Hurts get lost in the narrative. The Rams have a star shut-down corner, Jalen Ramsey as well. Did I say Jalen Hurts? I meant Jalen Ramsey. Jalen Ramsey, this incredible corner who, uh, look, he's, if not the best corner in the NFL, he's right there. Like, he's the, he's a top three corner in the NFL. And we just, I don't hear his name talked about anywhere. I'm like, I get it. Aaron Donald's amazing. Cooper Cup's amazing. Matthew Stafford's amazing. But, like, don't forget how loaded this football team is. They also have Jalen Ramsey. Team has everything. An offensive line that's really good. Andrew Whitworth is, like, 40 years old at left tackle, who I was concerned about, but he's playing pretty well. Can he stay healthy? That's, like, literally the only question for the Rams is, can Andrew Whitworth, their left tackle, play all year, which he's done for, like, 16 years in a row. So, I, Andrew Whitworth, it's... You can doubt him, but he's never given you a reason to doubt him. So other than, hey, he's old, but he's playing at a high level and he's never missed. Like, it's just Andrew Whitworth is incredible. They got a great defense in L.A. They have a great quarterback. They've got a great coach. They've got a great receiver, Cooper Cup. And then the one little kind of scary weakness the Rams had to start the year. Their running back Cam Akers got hurt towards Achilles. He's out for the year. Well, they made a trade. They said, we're going to go get former first-round pick Sony Michelle from New England, traded for him. And then when you pair Sony Michelle, who has never really quite lived up to his status as a first-round pick, put him within Sean McVay's offensive system, his scheme, his play design, you're looking at Sony Michelle being put in a position to finally live up to that status of a first-round pick that he never really has until I think this year, like, he's doing better. People, people aren't paying attention because the numbers aren't very good. But watch the way Sony Michel runs the football. He's doing a great job, and he's really filling the need exactly like L.A. needed him to. So the Rams are loaded, in my opinion. And it's, I am very, very curious. Like, when are the Rams going to lose their first football game? I don't know. And in my opinion, they are not only Super Bowl contenders. They should be, right now, after three weeks, the Super Bowl favorite. Number two, the second best 3-0 team, undefeated team in the NFL, is the NFC West Rams division rivals, the Arizona Cardinals. And I wondered, when will the Rams lose their first game of the year? 
Could it be week four? We have Cardinals at Rams coming up October 3rd on Sunday in L.A. Going to be fun. And only one team is going to walk away from that game undefeated. But Arizona has a star quarterback in their own right, Kyler Murray. He's fantastic. He can do stuff running the football. That is ridiculous. Like, he is so... Lamar is the fastest quarterback in the NFL. It's a really, really strong conversation, though. If you had to pick one guy, not to run 70 yards, but to just get to the outside, to beat linebackers to the edge... I don't know that you'd pick Lamar over Kyler. Like, it's, it's a definite conversation. That's how quick, in short bursts, Kyler Murray is. And not to mention, Kyler has an amazing arm. Like, one of the—Kyler, I, I, I love Lamar. Kyler's got a way better arm than Lamar Jackson. He's just an electric, amazing quarterback. Then you look at Arizona's receiving options. It's ridiculous. They have DeAndre Hopkins, A.J. Green, Christian Kirk, Andy Isabella. Like, Jalen Ramsey can only guard— one receiver at a time. And then you look at Arizona's defensive line. They've been dominant as well. J.J. Watt, Chandler Jones, they're leading the way off the edge. Arizona's tied right now for fourth most sacks in the NFL through three games with 10 of them. They're getting after quarterbacks. Now, the Cardinals, in my opinion, were not as convincing, though, as the Rams through the first three games of the year. They barely beat Minnesota Week 2. They got lucky. The Vikings literally missed the game-winning field goal. That's why Arizona won <laughs> week two against Minnesota. Then in week three, they beat Jacksonville, which simply is not an impressive win. I just um, I don't look at beating Jacksonville as a, ooh, wow, what a win. So I don't know. They look good. Arizona should probably be 2-1 and one right now. They should have lost to Minnesota. But they look good. It's nice to be 3-0. and oh, Enjoy it. But in my mind, and I don't mean I, I love Arizona. I, I got burned. I was a big believer in them last year. They kind of burned me, and maybe I was a year too early. I don't. I don't. I try not to like let that cloud my judgment. I, people always accuse me of letting that happen. I don't. Uh, but I, I still, and I'm not a hater. I want Arizona to be great. I, I love Kyler. I don't want Cliff Kingsbury to be fired. I I want it to work out. But I still think Arizona has a lot to prove this year, and there are three games this year. I guess a couple. Three, four, there's some games this year that are going to teach us a lot about this Arizona football team. Week six, they play at Cleveland. It's a big deal. Week eight against Green Bay. Week 17 at Dallas. Can they go on the road and beat Cleveland? Can they go on the road and beat Dallas? Can they beat the Rams? Week four on the road. Can they, they got two games against the 49ers this year. Those are the games that will be the defining Games of their season. Like, yeah, the Cardinals can beat up on bad teams. Probably should have lost to Minnesota. But how do they play against some of the best teams in the NFL? Are they that good yet? I don't know. I want to believe in Arizona. I just don't trust them yet. I'm just not ready to say they're going to go on the road and beat some of the best teams in the NFL at the Rams, at Cleveland. And that once I see that, hey, then I get it. Then I can support that. But until I see them win a big game on the road against a Super Bowl contender, until then... I am skeptical, although hopeful they will do well. Like, if they beat the Rams this weekend, and what if they beat, if they beat the Rams for, like, three touchdowns, you bet your bippy I'm going to be all in on Arizona. But I don't trust them to do that yet. Now, the third best undefeated team in the NFL, it's a, it's a tricky answer, right? <laughs> it's going to make... Well, I'll, pay, I'll pick a side, fair enough. Uh, the Denver Broncos are the third best undefeated team in the NFL. And number one, here's the elephant in the room. Denver's beaten three awful football teams. The Giants, 
the Jaguars and the Jets, two rookie quarterbacks, those teams are combined 0-9. <laughs> so it's not like these are massive, impressive wins for Denver. And the reality is that ranking Denver ahead of the Las Vegas Raiders, who are also 3-0, it was a coin flip between Denver and the Raiders. Both teams are 3-0. Denver's got a better roster, in my opinion. But I will admit, very openly, the Raiders have a better resume. They've beaten better football teams. And they've got a better quarterback, Derek Carr. I love, I'm a huge... Derek Carr does not get the respect he's deserved. The Raiders beat the Ravens, Pittsburgh, and then Miami. Three weeks in a row. Last year, those teams all had won 10 games or more. So the Raiders, in spite of a really tough opening few games, they're 3-0. They're undefeated. And they won some ways that were, like, week one, Monday Night Football, the Ravens game, unbelievable. That's a really good team win. The game I can't wait for, week six, we get the Raiders at the Broncos, a division matchup, and we get to learn once and for all which team is better. And they probably won't both be undefeated by week six. Maybe they will be, but I don't think so. But I'm not going to forget, when, when week six comes around, I'm going to reference when they were both 3-0, and and the debates people are having now, right now, which team is better. Because it'll be fun to find out, are the Raiders better or are the Broncos better? That's what I cannot wait to see. We're going to find out week six. Now, so far, through three games, the Raiders have, I mean, the most explosive offense in the NFL. They lead the NFL in total offense. Derek Carr, the Raiders quarterback, has thrown for already three games in. 1,200 yards passing, a little more than 1,200 yards. He's on pace to shatter, like absolutely obliterate the NFL record for passing yards in a single year. And, and that's, it's not, it's by more than just one game, because I know there's an extra game this year. He's going to do it if he stays on this pace, which I don't think he will. But the pace Derek Carr is on, he's on a pace to throw for over six thousand yards passing that's un- and like six thousand seven hundred like a lot way more than six thousand he's going to slow down eventually in my opinion but that's still an insane number and the Raiders young receivers Brian Edwards Henry Ruggs I, I love Hunter Renfro Hunter Renfro is the most underrated slot receiver in the NFL he does such good work man he Hunter Renfro the Raiders slot receiver like yeah Brian Edwards explosive down the sideline Henry Ruggs can burn everybody the guy who gets no glory is Hunter Renfro. He is a guy who is like technically perfect. Catches the ball. He's not, he's not a great athlete, right? Like Henry Ruggs is a, frankly, like a way better athlete. He can do more. He's capable of more. He's more fun to watch. But to me, like, I, dude, Hunter Renfro is the guy who, unsung hero, catches the ball, turns up field for like 10 yards. Makes him like just such a good technically sound football player who gets first downs. He catches passes, he turns and falls for first downs over and over and over again. I just think Hunter Renfro is incredibly underrated. And then you got you know tight end Darren Waller, who's a matchup nightmare. So Brian Edwards, Henry Ruggs, Darren Waller, and then the, you know the the underrated guy Hunter Renfro. It's so fun to watch this offense. And Derek Carr could win MVP this year. Derek Carr is playing out of his mind. So, I don't know. The team around Derek Carr is finally getting better. I think it's going to allow people to finally give him the respect that he's deserved. Like, people are finally starting to realize, oh, yeah, Derek Carr is really good. And I was like, dude, did you watch him when he should have won the MVP a couple years ago and broke his back? Like, Derek Carr is unbelievable. 
Now, Denver's quarterback, Teddy Bridgewater, so far has been one of the biggest shocks of the year for me watching. I watch him every week, and I'm like, and look, he's, so he's playing the best football of his career, and I understand that the Broncos have played the Jets and the Jaguars and the Giants, like bad, terrible, weak opponents. But it's not about the other team that's impressing me about Teddy Bridgewater. It's that, you know, he shattered his knee a couple of years ago. And now his knee looks better than ever. He's fully healed. His ability to move is better than I've ever seen in his career. His, the way he's moving in the pocket, his footwork, the way he's keeping plays alive. Like Teddy Bridgewater needs to get some respect for the way he's playing. And then his mechanics are way better. I, the thing, I did not expect at all to see Teddy Bridgewater's arm get stronger this year. I'm like, am I, am I seeing And I, it really is true. Like his mechanics are better. He's getting more behind the ball. He's driving the ball better downfield. It's really cool to see. And you know what Teddy looks like? Frankly, Teddy Bridgewater looks a lot like Drew Brees. And it's not, it's in this way. The way that Teddy looks like Drew Brees is his mechanics, his footwork, his accuracy, his decision-making. But it's, it's, it's less, I mean, decisions are great. He's playing bad defenses. But what it is is the mechanical rhythm of his game and the mechanical, he throws a corner out, and it looks, it looks like Drew Brees' film. You're like, that's, that's the same mechanics and footwork as Drew Brees throwing a corner out in New Orleans. And it makes sense because Teddy spent time as Drew's backup in New Orleans. And I, I wonder, like, did he spend the entire offseason copying his mechanics? Like, what, something happened there because Teddy looks way better and really, really good. And on another note, this is you gotta, you have to understand. This is Teddy Bridgewater's first year in the Pat Shermer offense in Denver. And when I watch Teddy play, I cannot believe it's year one because he's making decisions so quickly. He's precise. He knows exactly where he's going with the football. If read number one isn't there, bang, 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 he knows exactly where to go. Find his check down. Find his third, fourth read. It's like, dude, Teddy's on top of it. There's a very obvious reason why Teddy Bridgewater beat Drew Locke in that quarterback battle. And it's because it must not have even been close. Because Teddy is light years ahead of what I've ever seen Drew Locke play with. Teddy has mastered the offense in Denver. And and then Denver's roster is loaded. So if Teddy Bridgewater keeps playing like like Drew Brees, Denver legitimately could win a Super Bowl this year or be in the conversation for a Super Bowl. So Denver, do not overlook Denver as an undefeated team that is a lot better that people are giving them credit for. Finally, the worst of the best. The Carolina Panthers are the fifth best 3-0 team in the NFL. I love Carolina. Like I, and not just the state, not just the people. I love all of it. The owner, the coach, Sam Darnold, the quarterback, the general manager, making moves, trading for really good players. making like. Do you understand? They stole Sam Darnold from the Jets. Their starting quarterback who's going to be their franchise quarterback maybe for like next 10 years. We're three games in. I know that's a wild claim, but my point is like, do you understand how much thievery has gone on with Carolina, the way they built their they, – they just stole C.J. Henderson from the Jaguars for a no-name tight end, Dan Arnold, who I like better than people realize, but still, like that's – their defense is going to be good for like six, seven, ten years with C.J. Henderson, J.C. Horn, <laughs> And Jeremy Chin, it's like, I can't believe the moves they're making in Carolina. It's unbelievable. This team is building something in Carolina. They're 3-0. and 
Yeah, the record, in my opinion, is less impressive when you realize that they're dominating rookie quarterbacks. They beat Zach Wilson. And then not even, they didn't even beat, like, the Broncos beat Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. Carolina beat Zach Wilson and Davis Mills, the Houston Texans, who are just a train wreck. And then, by the way, week two, when Carolina beat New Orleans, the Saints were missing a ton of coaches because of COVID. So it's not like it's the most impressive resume I've ever seen from Carolina. But they do have a ton of winnable games at. Look at Carolina's schedule. Philly, Minnesota, Atlanta twice. The Giants, Washington. I, I love Carolina. And the reason why Carolina, in my opinion, is the fifth-ranked undefeated team, this is why. I do not believe that Carolina can beat a really good football team yet, like a Super Bowl contending football team. Like at Dallas week four, I think they lose. I think they're going to lose in this upcoming game on October 3rd on Sunday. But we're going to learn a lot about Carolina in this game. Like where do they really, it's a good litmus test. Where do they really match up? Against Dallas, who Dallas, I, I was very down on coming into the year. Dallas is fantastic. They've got an incredible group of players on offense. They've, the offensive line's better than I would have expected. They're, they're aging, but they're playing at a high level. And, I mean, can Carolina beat Buffalo on the road week 15? I don't think so. We'll see. I like Sam. It's year one, though. That best-case scenario, Carolina makes the wild card and then loses in the wild card round of the playoffs. But that's a good year. I mean, that's incredible. That If that's the year they have, there's nothing to be upset about with that. Because Carolina's building something. Their Super Bowl window, I don't think is opened yet this year, but next year it's going to open. And then they got, they got a while because their roster is so chock full of young talent. And as a team, they're still developing. It's year one with a new quarterback, Sam Darnold. Like Sam Darnold, three games into a rebirth of his career, still proving himself every week. Their defense is young. I, I, am, I, I wanted to be clear. I am not hating on Carolina when I rank them as the worst of the best undefeated football teams. Their future's incredible. But let's wait a little bit, let them develop a little bit before we raise expectations in Carolina to like Super Bowl or bust, because that's unrealistic and not fair to the young guys who are still figuring it out. But Carolina, the future is very, very bright. By the way, news today, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have signed veteran corner Richard Sherman. Richard Sherman is 33 years old. There's a reason why he wasn't brought back to the 49ers. Uh, some of it was off the field stuff. Some of it was he didn't play at a high level last year. I mean, it, there's a reason why it took him until week four of the NFL season to sign with an NFL team. Like if he was really desirable, he would have been on a team already. And I, that's brutal, but it's true. And I'm skeptical that Richard Sherman is going to be very good. I like Richard Sherman. I think he's a... Uh, his incident off the field this offseason was very like bizarre and unexpected. I was like, Richard Sherman getting in trouble, causing I, that, that surprised me quite a bit, but I, I've been a big fan. I, I grew up in the Northwest. I've been a massive fan of Richard Sherman forever. He's brash. He's bold. His battles with Tom Brady talking trash. When you bring a sorry ass receiver, like Crabtree at me, like that's, that's all, all time great television. I love that. So I'm a fan of him. But it's hard to tell. Like, I don't know. Uh, to me, honestly, like, my, my reaction initially when I saw that they were signing Richard Sherman, to me, it showed how desperate 
Tampa is in their secondary. They are so banged up. There's so many injuries in their secondary. However, I will say, like, even though I am very hesitant to praise this move and say it's going to be amazing, oh, yeah, even though I'm a little bit hesitant, I I do also acknowledge that it is a good fit. He's a veteran. He's been around the NFL a ton. And the culture in Tampa, not only because of Tom Brady, but the, the attitude of Tampa, the way they cater to veterans and they work with their schedules and they, hey, if you want to take Wednesday off to keep your body healthy, like they, they're really good about taking care of veteran players and catering their approach to every player individually. And Richard Sherman is not totally useless. Like he's not the athlete he once was, in my opinion, but he's really smart. He still has good technique. It's not like he forgot how to backpedal. It's not like he forgot how to keep a guy in his hip pocket. Or, or, or when a quarterback's about to throw the ball or the little tells, like the mental side of the game and everything that Richard Sherman can possibly control, you know he's going to do it to the very best of his ability. And I, again, I do think that because of Tom Brady, that's a really good environment for a player like Richard Sherman to do well. They're in a position to squeeze the very last good football out of Richard Sherman. And it's a ve- developing story. I am very, very curious to see how Richard Sherman in Tampa will affect that football team. And how good is he going to be? I don't know. I, I really don't know. But I have an open mind. And it's certainly, I, I think he's going to put his best foot forward. Now, how, how, how good is he really? I, I don't know. But I, And I'm not, it would be disingenuous of me to make bold claims and say he's going to do this and that. I, I, who knows? But it's certainly interesting and fun. So uh, Richard Sherman joined the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Okay, I, I need to be very... Let me drink some water real quick. I, uh, this one's going to be a very, very difficult story for me to cover. I saw something today that made my blood boil and really, frankly, made me <laughs> upset. I was, I was angry. And people make mistakes. It happens sometimes. Uh, you get stuff wrong. But I hate when people kick someone while they're down. And when you're taking cheap shots at someone who's awful and, and, again, who's down, that bothers me. I don't like that. I saw a bunch of people on the Internet recently roasting Arizona football, a football program that's 0-5. They're not very good. And they were making fun of Arizona football for holding open tryouts during the middle of the year. And what blows my mind, and this is where I, I know I said I don't like people taking cheap shots. I'm going to take a cheap shot with what I'm about to say. It's unfathomable to me how many journalists are covering, covering the game of football that never played football in college, that clearly have no idea about the sport. I'm like, who in the F are you? to make fun of Arizona football for doing something that every college football team does at some point. Like, this is not a story. Hey, did you know that Oregon, in like the peak of their football program, hold, held open tryouts midseason for walk-ons to walk onto the football program? It's not about the win-loss record. This is what's crazy to me. How can a journalist not recognize something that's an everyday occurrence and then call it's just like it's absurd to call out Arizona football for doing something that everybody does. It's amateur, it's weird, it's wrong. Some college football teams have smaller rosters and, and field a smaller football team with less bodies on their roster. 
helps keep costs down. You have fewer people to travel, fewer people to feed, take care of, yada, yada. And then you hold tryouts regularly because if you're a team that has a smaller roster, fewer people on scholarship, fewer people just around your football team, you get a couple injuries that pile up. Even if the guys aren't injured and out of the game, you still need more bodies at practice so that some of your people who are on scholarship can take fewer reps in practice. You need people to fill out the scout team. You literally need bodies. Being 0-5 is nothing to do with Arizona holding open tryouts. It's more about the fact that they need more bodies at practice. Again, in the peak of Oregon football, they held midseason tryouts. I had friends trying out for that football team when the year they went to the national championship, midseason, trying out for Oregon. So what are you talking about that it's a sign they're off? Like, why are you kicking them while they're down? I don't get it. It makes no sense to me. It's clear that the journalists covering that story that way Simply don't know how college football operates. I'm like, what's happening? <sighs> Trying to be, it's getting harder and harder for me to hide my my contempt for the media. And I look, I I, I make mistakes. I, I am a human being. Like I said the, the other day, I said that the Raiders won the Super Bowl in 2002. That's wrong, stupid Zach. I make predictions that are wrong. I get it. But what I hate. And maybe it's unavoidable, but these are there are people who are covering the game that just don't they don't know how it works. I don't know. I'm not trying to gatekeep. I feel like I'm gatekeeping, but it just it's little little deep. Maybe my problem is it feels like it's a it's someone who's trying to get clicks, making fun of a football like being snarky, knowing that it'll get a click or two. I mean, I've done I've probably made this exact mistake before. I I just but I'm trying to grow and be different, and I see people who are I feel lazy and not very well informed making fun of a football program that's just trying to fill out their roster. It's like, ah, uh, it irritates me to no end. Okay, uh, let's go to Patreon some more. Andrew writes in, he says, I love how after week one, a lot of people wrote off the Packers, but now we're back to playing like they did last year. It's fun to see the narrative shift. <laughs> yeah, like, like I said, I'm done hiding my contempt for the media. Like the sports media, so many people are, it's just, it's sad. I mean, it's not just sports media, man. It's everywhere. People, like, forgot about quality. People literally just don't, they want clicks and views. And, and, and it's honestly because people are so worried about losing their job and meeting a quota. Literally, like, some websites say you have to get this amount of clicks or you lose your job. So, of course, it creates a culture where people make really bad, crappy articles, clickbaity stuff that gets... You know, I'm so lucky and I'm thankful for my audience here because you guys have allowed me to make content where my focus is on making good stuff. I mean, look at the background. It's my office, right? It's not beautiful and flashy. And I don't, I don't, when I pick a topic, I sit down at my desk right behind me and I'm trying to pick a topic for the show. You know what I ask myself? And this is, I say this with privilege. I'm very lucky to be able to do this. Most people do not have this luxury. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. But I could say, is this topic interesting? Is it good? Is it quality? The question I never ask, and, and it definitely hurts me financially, but I, I, I'm good enough, so I don't need to worry about it. And that's, again, because of you guys. Thank you. I never need to say, will this get a lot of views? I can say, is this good? And that's a big difference that most people in the media don't do. And I... 
Oh, I like watching the media scramble, man. When people after week one, the Packers, they suddenly are like, well, Aaron, blah, 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 blah. And I mean, you can have the entertain the conversation, but it was, it was so weird how you see the jerk re- back and forth and back and forth about suddenly the Packers, they forget Aaron Rodgers won the Super Bowl MVP, uh, sorry, the NFL MVP last year. Like Aaron didn't suddenly forget how to play football after one week. They just had a bad game week one. It happens sometimes. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit fair to question the Packers, but some of the stuff I saw were like people saying that Rodgers doesn't care. I'm like, what are you, ta- what are you talking about? Why would R- Rodgers clearly cares about football? Watches mechanics. I, I'm, I have for years been a guy against Aaron Rodgers, right? I, I didn't like Aaron for years. And it's, the world has changed so much, I find myself defending Aaron all the time now. And I, and I hate, I, I for years have hated on Aaron's leadership. Like, I, I, how am I the guy defending Aaron? I hate when he glares at receivers. But I, I like what Aaron's doing this year. I, don't, I, I went on a total rant there. I apologize. Thomas writes in, he says, I did not expect the Broncos and the Raiders to be on top of their division, the AFC West, at the end of week three. Yeah, it's a surprise, man. It's fun, though. Uh, probably it's not going to last. But still, it, it, it's really fun to see... Denver and the Las Vegas Raiders. Kansas City's one and two. And I I thought the Chargers are going to be, I think, the team that wins that division. But it just shows you how September doesn't necessarily accurately reflect how the rest of the year is going to go. Right? Like, do you you still think that in, like, it's not a big enough sample size. I mean, week 17... Week 18, I guess, we have, we have more weeks now. The Raiders aren't going to be undefeated. Denver's not going to be undefeated week 18, and they're probably not going to lead their division. But my point is, enjoy it now. It's really fun to see, and I certainly, I did not expect, I was, ho- I was hopeful that Denver would be great. I was hopeful that, the, I, I think I'm the kind of person, I root for everyone to succeed, except for like people who I think are just like bad people or like have a bad approach. Like I, I, I don't root for uh, Dave Gettleman, the Giants general manager. I just hate his approach. I think he, his philosophy with building a football team intrinsically fights with what I believe in. So I, I don't root for him to succeed, but I, I, don't, I w- don't wish negative things against him. But I, I love seeing Denver do well. I love seeing the Raiders do well. It's very, very cool. Charlie writes in and says, Hey, Zach, I saw an interesting play in the Niners game that intrigued me. It was a three tight end set where Jimmy pitched it to his right. I think Kyle called this and put this play in simply to get it on film. I wonder if we're going to see a Jimmy G double pass George Kittle highlight soon. Much love, XOXO. Hugs and kisses. Thanks, Charlie. Oh, man. Charlie wants to. Um, <laughs> that was weird. I'm sorry. I don't know. I'm, I'm very tired. It's, it's been up all night. Anyway, um, Charlie, good write-in, first of all. Really interesting. I love that, and I, I, I love when coaches do that weird little stuff. They, they throw something in to see if it'll become anything, and I, I just think that's awesome, and I, I, I will watch for that. Will It's, it's like a fun—I love this stuff. Like, I, I don't gamble, and I don't bet, but it's like, like will this happen over under? Will it, will it happen? Will we see a Jimmy Garoppolo-George Kittle double pass at some point later in the year? If we do, Charlie, great call, and that'd be fun to see. Okay, uh, Brandon writes in, he says, Zach, if you could change the outcome of one Super Bowl, which Super Bowl would it be and why? What changes do you think that outcome would have had 
on the league with that team winning. I've got one, two, three, four Super Bowls that I think would have been interesting with a different outcome. The first one that came to mind was the Patriots' undefeated season. They went 17-0. They couldn't go 18-0. They lost to the Giants in the 2007 season in the Super Bowl. And honestly, I, I, I thought I, you asked a question. I read it. I thought about it. And then I realized, like, if I could go back and time travel and then somehow have the control to change the outcome, I don't think I would. I don't think I would have the Patriots. And, and I, I love the Patriots dynasty. I'm a massive Tom Brady fan. I don't even hide it. Bill Belichick's un, endless, he's endlessly interesting. Can't even talk. Um, and yet, despite my fandom of those human beings, I still am glad they lost. It made the sport better. I think it made Brady mad. I, th- I think Tom Brady really, uh, that has driven him for years. That being called a cheater, all the hate, like he, he fuels him, he loves it. And then he's also fueled, I think, by love of the football. Uh, he loves training and working and preparing, and I, I totally relate to that. But, the outcome of the Patriots losing in the Super Bowl to the Giants, not once, but actually twice, it showed that a God can bleed. You're not infallible. Even the Patriots can lose a football game, and that's endlessly interesting. I, I need to go for a second. My cat is being insane, so give me a second. I- I'm sure you didn't hear that. Uh, my cat, I'm pretty sure, got a running start, ran and jumped full speed into my office door. Like, I, what are you doing? I, I, that stupid cat. Um, I, I'm sure you probably didn't hear it. If you did, it was like a crash and a bang. Uh, but you probably, I think you can't literally hear anything outside of a five-foot radius of the microphone. Anyway, uh, we're talking about Super Bowl outcomes that I wish had been differently. And I don't know if that's all ones I wish, but it would have been interesting if things had happened differently. Uh, I, I wish Kurt Warner had won a Super Bowl with Arizona. Big Ben did not need a second Super Bowl. And, and I think, here, here's the thing. Imagine if Mike Tomlin didn't have a Super Bowl victory in Pittsburgh. How would his legacy look differently? Like, what, what, what would happen? It's, it's a very interesting thought. If Mike Tomlin didn't beat Arizona in that Super Bowl, would we be giving him patience right now? Because Steelers look terrible. It's just very interesting to me. I'm like, huh. All the mistakes, all the bad losses over the years, like the patience would be way different. The energy in Pittsburgh, which is probably already fed up with Mike Tomlin, or at least very critical of him. And then I, I wish Kurt Warner, man. I really, Kurt Warner, end of his career, replaces Matt Leinart, making a crazy run with Arizona. Him and Larry Fitzgerald, they would have been cool to see them win that Super Bowl. Remember, Larry Fitzgerald had the game-winning touchdown, I thought, until Big Ben made that crazy drive through that ball that, was it Santonio Holmes, corner of the end zone, like leaning that? One of the most incredible throws I've ever seen. Go look, go look up Big Ben Cardinals touchdown. It's like an unbelievable throw. Here's the thing that I wish had happened. Like, if I could change one outcome, this is the one I would pick above all else. And I, I wouldn't actually change the outcome of the game. I would just change the play call. I wish Seattle had run the ball on the goal line. It's the number one thing I'd change. Remember, Seahawks, Patriots, in the Super Bowl, 
Seattle makes a crazy throw, amazing catch, ball in the goal line, and Seattle throws a slant. Malcolm Butler jumps the route, interception, game over, Patriots win. And you had Marshawn Lynch, <laughs> and you didn't give him the ball on the one-yard line. I, I, I don't really care if the Seahawks win that game. I would love to, like, you know in Madden you can, like, replay scenarios and situations? What happens if Seattle runs that football? Do the Patriots stop him? Do they not? I don't care if Seattle wins that game. I just want them to lose by handing the ball to Marshawn Lynch. That would have been way more compelling, and you could at least defend that. It, it ruined Daryl Bevel's career. I mean, I guess he's in Jacksonville losing games with a rookie quarterback throwing a bunch of interceptions. I don't know. I don't know, but still, like, oh, man. Here, here's a what if. There's that new Marvel show. I'm not promoting it, but there's a new Marvel show. It's actually, I don't like What If very much. I wanted What If to be really good, and the What If scenarios that Marvel's giving us are not that compelling to me. They're not what I want. Although the T'Challa episode of Star-Lord was pretty cool. Here's like the ultimate What If. It's all, I'm going to say this, and it's not political. I'm not, I just, food for thought. I'm not going to add any commentary, really. I'm just going to say, think about this for a moment. Imagine if Colin Kaepernick had beat the Baltimore Ravens in the Super Bowl instead of losing. Remember, the 49ers had momentum. Then there was a power outage, and the blackout changed the outcome of that game. It changed momentum. Imagine if Colin Kaepernick, what if Colin Kaepernick had won a Super Bowl? I'm not touching that. I'm not saying anything. But it's a big what if. And, and here's another crazy thought. They lost to Baltimore and they lost to Kansas City. The 49ers have lost two Super Bowls like really recently. I, I, I forget about that sometimes. It's like, oh, dude, poor 49ers fans, man. They really, <laughs> that's poor fans, man. That's awful. They, they really did go through the ringer and lose multiple Super Bowls. Like, that's really sad. Okay, I want to shift to this because I, I, I just I want to touch on Madden Monday or Madden Mondays, Manning Mondays. I watched the Manning cast for Monday Night Football this week. I loved it. It's a great watch. I, I really truly believe that every week, Peyton and Eli Manning get a little more refined, a little better. The commentary gets more interesting. I mean, it's so interesting already. I, I really, really love Monday Night Football with Peyton and Eli. But here's the one problem that's really it's starting to irritate me. I can't even imagine other people. It's this big flaw. They really have not figured out how to have guests on that show yet. And I, honestly, I really don't think I need guests. If a guest is coming on to Monday Night Football for an interview to talk over the game and not acknowledge the game at all, don't even bother. I don't want that. I, I really don't want to hear that or listen to that. If they're the, Russell Wilson came on and was commentating the game, sharing commentary, saying, oh, that play was interesting. That coverage is interesting. He's commentating on the game. I love that. That's fantastic. But during the Manning cast, they had Nick Saban on. And I will admit, it was a fascinating conversation. Really interesting, fun. I loved it. But Saban was taking a break from preparing for his next game. He didn't have Monday Night Football on. He's not watching the game. It's... It was like watching two shows side by side. You had, on one side... Peyton and Eli interviewing Nick Saban on the other side. 
you had this football game happening, and they did not coordinate with each other at all. It's and look, Peyton and Eli interviewing Nick Saban, a legendary football coach, in my opinion, the greatest college football coach of all time. That's amazing content. Like I love that. But when you're playing it next to Monday Night Football, not even acknowledging the game happening, that's a distraction, and it's very weird. I, I just, it's a separate show. You, you need to make Peyton and Eli interviewing people a different show on ESPN because that's not Monday Night Football. That's Peyton and Eli interviewing people, not acknowledging football that's happening. And I'm not trying to be too critical. I probably sound more angry than I am. I'm not angry. It's just not good. I, I, here, I guess here's what I'm mad about. On, here, here, here it is right here. My theory is it's some producer out there that doesn't have confidence that Peyton can do it by himself. And he's like, well, Peyton and Eli, they need guests. Shut up. No, they don't. They don't need Brett Favre to come in half a game late, not interested at all in the football game, hasn't watched it, has nothing interesting to say, or Rob Gronkowski, who doesn't care literally at all, or even Nick Saban, who is a great interview. Who's, Nick Saban was very interesting, and at least he was like compelling. But I'm trying to watch a football game. I'm not here to watch a Nick Saban interview, and I want to. Like, and Here's what's more frustrating for me is I love the non-interview segments of Manning Mondays. Like Peyton and Eli talking over a football game and commentating on it. Hallelujah. It's amazing. It's casual. It's interesting. There's coverage conversations going on. It's so much better. I, I, you know, I think the Monday Night Football is uniquely awful. I just don't care. The regular Monday Night Football with the three guys they have on there, I just, no offense to them, I just don't like it. I just don't. I don't connect with it. I don't like it. I actually think three people is too many. You need two people to comment on a game back and forth. Adding a third person, three's a crowd. It doesn't work. I don't like it. I, I hate the way Monday Night Football is operated now. And, and the, the amazing brevity I got, the what's brevity's not the word, the luxury, the, the manna from heaven, Peyton Manning and his brother Eli talking over Monday Night Football, it's so great until they bring on a guest and then it gets ruined. And I'm like, ah, oh, why? I don't want this. It was going so well until you brought on <laughs> Travis Kelsey, insert anybody. I, I don't need guests unless they're going to talk about coverage and the game and the quarterback play. And so far, the only guests that have been good, frankly, Russell Wilson was the best. Pat McAfee tried his best to talk about the game. Pat McAfee was trying and... God bless Peyton and Eli. They kept talking about other nonsense that I don't care about, but it wasn't Pat McAfee's fault. Pat McAfee was doing his very best to try to comment on the game, and they just don't. It's like, I don't, I don't want an interview. I'm not here for an interview. I'm here to watch football and hear Peyton and Eli talk about the game that's currently happening live next to the interview that's also on screen. I just don't care about the interviews. Now, by the way, I want to say it makes sense why. And again, it's, it's like producers don't believe in the idea enough to just let Peyton and Eli talk. They need, they're like, we need another thing. And also, it feels kind of like they are trying to just get Twitter highlights. Like they're, they're like, they're trying to make social media moments happen by little weird bits. And I don't, I don't need the bits. I don't need the interviews. I need Peyton and Eli talking about football. That's all I want from that. And it's, it's, it's literally perfect. It's, all, it's simple. It's easy. And that's all you need. I don't need production value. I don't need graphics. I don't effing need interviews. I don't need bits or comedy. I just want them talking about football because it's amazingly interesting. Sorry, I'm, I'm so rambly right now. I'm just going and going. Now, it makes sense why Peyton does the broadcast this way. I mean, it makes sense for him. He, 
Think about Peyton Manning doing a traditional Monday night football broadcast. You have to travel to the game. You spend the weekend away from your family. The way Peyton does it now, same with Eli, there's no, but, but let's be clear. ESPN wants Peyton Manning. They don't want Eli. They just said, oh, Peyton wants Eli, so we'll give, we'll give Peyton Eli as well. But the way Peyton Manning does broadcast this way, the Manning Mondays from his house, there's no travel. You spend the weekend with your family. You get to watch a game with your brother. It's an amazing. It makes total sense. I, and I get why Peyton wouldn't want to do Monday Night Football because you have to, when you commentate Monday Night Football the normal way, you have to try to fit your insight into like an eight-second soundbite rather than being able to fully extrapolate your opinion on the coverage and this and that, and there's way less nuance. I, I, Peyton is revolutionizing the game for how to broadcast and color commentate a football game. But they need to let him do that, not interview Nick Saban. And again, it gets better every week. It, it, it's so good when it's not interviews. They don't need interviews for that broadcast to be good. I'm beating a dead horse, but I, I'm clearly, I love it. I, I really love Peyton and Eli's Monday Night Football, and I don't want it ruined with bad segments and content that isn't relevant to the game. Okay, um, I'm going to make people, ang- I don't know if I'm angry. I think you can actually say, like, I, th- I think I can say all this stuff. We'll see. I might get in trouble. Um, I probably shouldn't. Whatever. Uh, receiver Josh Gordon is back in the NFL. He signed with Kansas City. And uh, it, it's terrifying, by the way, if, if Josh Gordon can stay on the field. I think I said Josh Gordon. I, I hope I didn't say Josh Allen. I meant Josh Gordon. Flash Gordon, this incredible receiver, former All-Pro. Played all, you know, <laughs> New England and Seattle and Cleveland, like a really great receiver. Uh, if he can stay on the field, what he can add to Kansas City is ridiculous. Like, they don't need him. And yet he will be a big playmaker if he can stay on the field. Right now he's on the practice squad. He's earning the, learning the offense, earning his keep, and if he does well enough, he'll elevate him to the, the full roster, uh, the 53-man roster. So here's what I shouldn't say, but I, I might as well. I'll do it. It's my show. Say whatever I want. Come after me. I don't care. Um, alcohol is worse than Mary Jane. Alcohol is an awful drug that no one talks about in our society. It's very weird to me. It's worse for your body. And, and I think, frankly, NFL players should be allowed to use pot for pain relief. Like, do you understand how badly NFL players destroy their bodies every week? And then we give them opiates. Like, I take painkillers. Why not just let them have some edibles? In our country, we allow tobacco, cigarettes, tobacco, opioids. Literally, like, you can have Vicodin, but you, you can't, God forbid, you have a, a plant that makes your pain go away. It's so bad. It's like such a good sentiment and, and like a, it's very telling about our society that you can have alcohol, but God forbid you have a gummy made from plants. It's totally backwards. And Josh Gordon needs to follow the NFL's rules. Like the NFL says you can't have pot. Don't do it. But I just think it's a dumb rule that I, it's not just the NFL. It's, it's, countrywide I don't, know, I don't know i just i don't understand why we embrace alcohol so readily which like destroys your body and you can die if you have too much of it name the, who's who's overdosed on weed i just don't i don't know i don't know i don't know man I, it's a it's a very weird thing and I, I hope i didn't offend anybody it's not my goal but i just I, let me tell you i don't drink any alcohol at all it makes me feel horrible and the couple times a year I partake in 
gummies. It's, it's my mind feels better. My body doesn't hurt. I'm creative. I'm nice. I'm calm. I don't, I don't feel sick the next day. Like I sleep better. I don't know, man. I just don't, I do not understand our country's willingness to punish people for doing a plant-based substance, but God forbid, you know, I don't know. We, we just, we just, we so willingly accept alcohol, which is like way worse. And then opiates. I don't, I just, I'm rambling now. Sorry. I apologize. Move on. Um, one second. My cats are going crazy. Here's an example of what I mean when I say that there's always something that goes wrong. My cat just peed all over a bunch of electronics. I go, of course. Dang it. It's like, there's always something. I'm trying to record that ink show, and there's a jackhammer in the background. There's a, <laughs> I, I, there's always something. The internet's cut out. Cat's peeing. I don't know. It's, it's insane. Let's talk about Formula One. On Sunday, we had the Russian Grand Prix. Now, here's my question. Is it Sachi? Or Sochi. Like, the American way is probably Sochi. But I would imagine the British way to say that is Sachi. So someone write in let me know. I'm curious what the correct one is. Either way, it was a wild race. And I felt horrible for McLaren driver Landon Norris. He led basically the entire race. And then on lap 47 of 53, it started raining. And then with four laps to go, Lewis Hamilton, who was in second place, took a pit stop. And then after the pit stop, Lewis Hamilton in second place had three laps to make up a 25.8 second gap. And I'm like, well, like, Lando has a shot. And then it started to downpour. Heavy, heavy torrential rain. And Lando lost all the grip. Sliding everywhere. Couldn't, it could, it's just awful. And you see the lead slipping away farther and farther. And in the end, Lewis Hamilton won the race. Max Verstappen got second. And it was a tragedy for Lando. It was terrible. He finished in seventh. I felt so bad for him. Heartbreaking loss. And that leads me to a question from William on Patreon. William wrote in and said this. He said, man, I am absolutely gutted for Lando. At the time, I loved the decision to stay out. He was so confident. But at some point, you have to trust your engineers and the data they have. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty, and it could have easily been Hamilton struggling with inters on a dry track. But if you're in Norris's shoes, do you listen to the team and box? So, of, of course, like logically, with hindsight, Lando should have been taken a pit stop, put on wet tires, intermediates. But you, you, know, you got to understand, you know, in, in pit lane, the team has the radar and the weather information, not Lando Norris. Like, Absolutely. But then put yourself in Lando Norris's shoes psychologically. You're in first place. You've led the entire race. You desperately want to win this race. It feels so counterintuitive to box and give up your lead. Like, okay, Hamilton's going to box. That gives me a 25-second gap in three laps. Like, there's no way he can make that up in a normal race. You can never make up a 25-second gap in three laps unless your tire's blown out. So I totally get why Lando Norris stayed out. It was a coin flip. It's just, will it rain more or will it rain less? That's the question. Or will the rain hold off long enough for me to finish this drive? And frankly, Lando just guessed wrong. It's sad, but it's true. If the rain had held off for five more minutes, five more minutes, three more laps, Lando wins the race. Lando would have been right. It sucks that it happened the way it did for Lando. 
sometimes though you take a risk and you lose like that's just how it works sometimes and I think it is a good lesson though for Lando and McLaren building trust and learning to trust the team orders that there's something there that can be gleaned in the note-taking process for Lando like figuring out how do we make sure this doesn't happen in the future but I I just I gotta say I felt so horrible for Lando Norris now the other big story from this race is Max and Lewis Hamilton Max Verstappen Lewis Hamilton Max had a double penalty going into the race, a three-place grid penalty for the crash with Lewis in Italy, not to mention then a penalty for a new power unit. So he had to start last in the Russian Grand Prix. He finished the race in second. Unbelievable. Now, the rain helped Max, for sure, get to second. But the outcome was insane because after the race, Max and Lewis still are neck and neck in the F1 driver standings. In the F1 standings, there's only a two-point gap between them. Here are the driver standings. You have Lewis is in first with 246.5 points. Max is in second in the driver standings with 244.5 points. Third is Valtteri Bottas, 151 points. Fourth is Lando Norris, 139 points. Fifth is Sergio Perez, 120 points. Well, let's, let's talk about the team, you know, constructor standings. I might as well mention them. In first, you have Mercedes with 397.5 points. Red Bull is in second with 364.5 points. McLaren is third in the driver's standings. There's a big gap there between second and third. McLaren has three, uh, 230, 234 points, over 100 points less than Red Bull. Ferrari's in fourth at 216.5 points. And the wetter weather, when the rain came in at Saatchi, it created chaos. It was, it was like ridiculous what happened. And in the end, I just cannot believe that Max got second in this race. It's like, it's shocking. Because with 11 laps to go, remember, Max was in 7th place with 11 laps to go, and he got stuck in 7th. He got passed by Fernando Alonso. That's how bad things were going. And then the rain came in, created chaos. Max took advantage, got into 2nd. It was like an unbelievable finish for Max Verstappen. Like, just the, the Red Sea parted, and he got the opportunity of a lifetime to keep the gap between him and Lewis really, really tight. And we only have a handful of races left to go this year. And it's shaping up to be one of the best finishes of all time to a Formula One season. It's one of those special years where it's going to come right down to the very end. And that, that so rarely happens. Usually by like this point of the year, frankly, Lewis Hamilton has won by like 100 points. And like, wow, Lewis, once again, F1 champion, no competition. Like it's, we're so lucky. You have to, if you're a Formula One fan, you have to appreciate what we're building up to, this incredible finish where we don't know. Max Verstappen versus Lewis Hamilton, either one could win. Are they going to crash into each other? Could that be a factor? Let's hope not. Likely, we're, we think that Lewis is going to have to get another engine swap and then take a penalty and start at the back of one of the races coming up. Like, it's an unbelievable way to start the year, and I just, like, I'm blown away. I'm like, wow, I cannot believe what's going on. The ending in F1 this year is going to be crazy. It's just such a special year. You better appreciate it. If you're an F1 fan, what a way to end the year. I have a weird side note, by the way, about this Grand Prix. Uh, the telephoto lenses. Go, anyone ever curious about Saatchi? I am. And the telephoto lenses they used at this track were amazing. They made the mountains. The way you use telephoto lenses, it makes the mountains look way closer in the background than they really are. And it made it look like the mountains in, in Saatchi, Russia, were, like, looming over the track. It was so cool. Beautiful work. And Saatchi looks like a really cool place. Uh, like, this amazing geographic location where you have mountains and sea 
and a tropical climate. It's really lush and green, lots of rainwater. This is rare, special location. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever go to Russia. But if I do, Sachi is on my bucket list, and I would love, love to get there someday if it's ever possible. I just That would be a really, really cool trip. Maybe go to a Grand Prix there. It looks like a really cool town. I just I can't get over the mountains and the, the sea and it's just the greenery. It's like such a beautiful place, and it really it reminds me of where I live in Hawaii, honestly. It's like, it's, a, it's like a bigger, higher, taller mountain in Hawaii. It's very, very unique and very, very cool. All right, um, let, me, let me just – we're so far into the show. I'm going to ramble a little bit here. Um, I want to talk about the Browns real quick because I, I just think we have to acknowledge everyone's talking about all the airtime from this Bears-Browns game is going to Justin Fields and Matt Nagy. And not enough people are talking about how good the Browns' defense played on Sunday. Miles Garrett, their defensive end, was incredible. And you just have to give him credit. Credit to Cleveland. Like, Miles Garrett had a hell of a game. And – there's a move going around on social media. It's just unbelievable what Miles Garrett can do. Now, Matt Nagy, I kind of, as I, I sit and I think about the Bears, Justin Fields, first ever start in the NFL, that Bears-Browns game. I just can't understand why Matt Nagy didn't call plays that worked for Justin Fields. Like, I, I've sat, I thought about it a lot. I'm like, well, they really did only move the pocket like twice. They really didn't run a lot of quarterback-designed runs. Like, what's the point of drafting Justin Fields if you don't take advantage of what he does best? It's baffling. It's very weird. And I I just... I've seen this theory going around. I got Someone sent it to me on, on Patreon. They're like, do you think Matt Nagy purposely did bad so that Fans would shut up. Like the fans who were begging for Justin Fields to play. Do you think he did bad? He, he intentionally sabotaged Justin Fields to show that Andy Dalton should have been the guy, like to make him look more right? It's, it's, it's bizarre. I'm like, man, I just... Because there is this really fair criticism that Matt Nagy did not put together a game plan to take advantage of what Justin Fields does best, which is run around. And I, I just am blown away. Now, I, I, I maintain that no offensive line... Or no, no scheme you can call on offense will work with a bad offensive line like that. But it is true that Matt Nagy did not do his job against the Cleveland Browns. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. We have been ta- I've been talking for like an hour and a half. I love you. I appreciate you. Uh, I, I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed soon. I love you. Appreciate you. Ba-dum-bum. Bam. We are done.